Welcome to the Marketing Millennials, the No BS Marketing Podcast. I'm Daniel Murray, and join me for unfiltered conversations with the brains behind marketing's coolest companies. The one request I tell our guests, stories or it didn't happen. Get ready to turn the f*** up. An algorithm is the audience. These platforms are incentivized to keep you on the platform. They want good content on the platform. They wouldn't put bad content on the platform to show to more people. So the key to that is at first is just like sports, like anything, just take at bats and get quantity to get to quality. Today's sponsor, Dash Hudson, is granting free access to their highly anticipated social media trends report to allow you to unlock the insights and best practices you need to outsmart social. To read the report and sign up for a free 14-day trial, head over to dashhudson.com backslash podcast. What's up, everybody? It's episode 200, and I have a special episode for you. It was recorded live at Harvard Business School. Yes, the same one that Kim Kardashian spoke at. I got the opportunity to record live in a classroom with my wife and chief growth officer of Sharma Brands, Ari, and product marketing queen and a good friend, Tamara. Moderating this conversation, she killed it, was Alice Liu. She is a Harvard Business School alum. She's also the founder of Merge Peer. We talked about discovering product market fit, finding content market fit, and strategies to grow your brand. This is a great conversation. Can't wait for y'all to listen. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the uh, Marketing Club's first event of the year, a live podcast with the Marketing Millennials. My name is Alice. I am the Director of Speakers at the Marketing Club. I graduated from Harvard Business School last year. I now have my own merch company. It's called MerchPeer. It's a seed-funded company which makes affordable, high-quality campus merch and corporate merch. And a lot of you probably have ordered through us already, so thank you so much. Um, And today, we have the honor of having three amazing marketer guests, Tamara, Daniel, and Ari. And I let you guys introduce yourselves. Thanks, Alice. So my name's Tamara. I'm an award-winning product marketer, and I recently just left tech to work full-time on my own business. It's called PMM Camp. It's basically a newsletter and private community for strategic product marketers. I also do product marketing consulting, and I spent the last 15 years as a product marketing executive working at companies like uh, Unbounce, Kajabi, FreshBooks. What's up, everybody? I'm Daniel. I founded the Marketing Millennials. We're a community of almost a million followers now. Um, We're a top 10 podcast. We've scaled from since 2020, which is really exciting. And I've been a B2B marketer since I started. I started, actually, I met my wife, Ari, at my first SaaS company and then worked in marketing operations and then got into media. Hi, I'm Ari. So happy to be here. And this is such an honor. Um, By night, I write my e-commerce go-to-market newsletter called Go to Millions. It's read by 42,000 marketers. But by day, I have a very busy day job. Um, I'm a chief growth officer at a D2C e-commerce agency where we help launch and grow 
many of the brands you probably buy from my meta ad. So thank you so much for shopping. And um, it's really an honor to be here. And I am on the Marketing Millennials because it's my husband's podcast and then also because I'm going to teach you all my secrets. So happy to be here. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much, guys. Welcome. So let's dive in. So today is all centered around marketing for very early stage um, startups. And I have a personal story. When I started at HBS um, about four years ago, I really want to start a sex toy company. Um, And my group asked at the very first uh, reciprocity ring um, during the first year was, can everybody please fill out my questionnaire about your sex life? Uh, I spent a few months talking to my section mates, Howard Business School professors, actually about their pain points with sex toys. I even spent time creating sex ed uh, content, but I did not persist. So now I wonder, um, in the first six months of a very early stage startup, what really should be a successful go-to-market strategy look like? What should I be doing? Sure, I'll get started. Um, For me, the first six months, it's all about defining who is your audience and what is the product that they need. And so you've probably gone into it with a hypothesis on both of those things, like you did. But now you need to prove both of those hypotheses and you need to bring them together into one hypothesis because there might be a market that's willing to buy, but they might not want the product that you have in mind. Or maybe there is amazing product, but actually it would be a better market to sell it to. And so a lot of times we call this product market fit. I think sometimes product market fit also gets a bad rap, but essentially that is what you're trying to do is you're trying to find product market fit as fast as possible in ways that don't scale. And then once you find that product market fit, then you can start to layer on scale. Ideally, post six months, you might, (laughs) some companies take some years to find product market fit, but ideally you're finding that faster. And I would just add from a content perspective, another view, I think you should actually start building audience before you even launch. And I think this is a good way to test tomorrow's hypothesis of audience. So one way to do that is, think about your content as a product and say like, I'm going to deliver the best content for my audience. The content's everything for the audience and nothing about the product I'm going to sell. And I'm going to build an audience of like, let's say I'm selling to plumbers. I'm going to build the best content for plumbers out there. I'm going to create a raving fans of plumbers. And then it'll be easier for me to say, go do target marketing testing, product testing, and say, what are, you, what are your pain points? What do you like? But first, I think it, it's easier to create a distribution network through content and then try to do that. So I think one of the ways I've seen it is create great audience first and then find a way to, to sell to that product. I think that's perfect. What I would just add to is in the first six months when you're getting your first customers, you have to study those customers because no matter how much you spend to acquire them, what they'll then do and how often they'll come back and if they'll come back and even more so who they are. Like I work in e-commerce, so we have Shopify data where anyone who orders from our store, we have their email address, we have their full name and we have their their address. So I know I can go look up my first 200 customers and study them. And I literally will go look on LinkedIn for 200 people and it's pretty manual, but it really matters like who the people are versus what who you thought they would be. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't take the time to study your first customers, then you can't make content for that type of people. And then also speaking to them in that first six months too. 
I think what you said there was really important, especially from a founder perspective, because as a founder, you're so passionate about your business idea, right? And you've probably spent hundreds of hours thinking about it. And you probably have very strong hypotheses and they may be wrong. And so I think where I've seen a lot of founders fail and even just executives at companies fail is they're too attached to the idea. And Ari, you're completely right because it's okay. You need a strong idea to go out there, but then you need to be willing to adapt fast And the only way to do that is to talk to customers. Like even when I started PMM Camp, I had a very specific idea in mind and it's already changed and it's been less than a year. And I did that through talking to my customers. And so before I even launched anything, I had an audience, like Daniel said, and I engaged with that audience, some of my most engaged users in that audience to test my idea. And through that testing of that idea, I ran a survey. I did one-on-one interviews. I actually pivoted before I even got to a launch. And then even since I launched, I then have looked at every single customer that signed up for my newsletter, every single customer that signed up for the community or any of my other products. And I've either messaged them back to ask them, like, why did you join? What are you getting from this? And I almost make like micro pivots along the way. And truly, like six months ago, what I set out to build is not what I've built today. And if I was not open to that, like my community has shaped my product, not me shaping my product. I resonate really well to that. And with my second company, Merch Peer, I think that's where I did more successfully, way more successfully, which I can see through the revenue. Mm -hmm. And I think that the one thing that I did really right this time is I did a lot of customer interviews with um, people that I didn't know. Mm -hmm. So someone, um, another entrepreneur friend of mine had told me to look for people like on Instagram who are shopping like at competitors on their Instagram, look who's commenting. So I actually um, reached out to a bunch of people like within campus groups, like my go-to-market, one of my important go-to-market is um, sororities. So I looked up a ton of um, sorority people on LinkedIn and I just DM'd them. Um, And I asked them, would you be willing to do a interview with me for like $30? Mm -hmm. So a lot of them responded and I think These interviews gave me so much insights to their actual pain points and how my capabilities would match up to their pain points. And I think once I launched my own product and my company, um, I was spot on with my value proposition. I think also like the thing that people need to, when you come to content or building things is there's going to be people in your audience who aren't going to buy and not ready. And there's going to be people who do buy your product. And I think you can't ignore the people who aren't going to buy because they're going to be eventually buyers. And through customers, you're going to learn, hey, this is the pain points I need to talk to. But I think a lot of people that I see out there only care about customers. And I think they lose audience value and the people that are raving fans that might not be ready or have the pain that they your product is solving today, but they eventually will have the pain. And then they get into bad behaviors, which I'm going to create content that's just sell, 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 instead of content that's just great for my audience, that eventually they'll buy something because they'll have the need that I'm serving. Most people out there, 98% of your audience are not ready to buy. Um, There's the 2% that are ready to buy, and those are the people where you figure out what their pain point, what the value that they had to buy the product, but the 98%, you still have to educate and that's where content comes in and um, helps that process. Well, and I think there's a difference too in just saying 
I'm going to grow a generic audience versus I'm going to shape the audience I'm building, which is what I think you're talking about. Because if you're shaping that audience, they don't have to buy from you. I mean, technically, by using your free content, whether it's a newsletter or LinkedIn, they are using a product Mm -hmm. if you think about your content as a product. But ideally, there's still some connective tissue between them, wouldn't you say? Like, for example, I think everyone that looks at my LinkedIn content, most of them don't buy anything from me. But I think there's a common thread of certain problems that they have. And the more that I can understand who they are and the problems they have, the better I can create content for them. Yeah, I think the what you said is correct. I think what you need to start with is have a, I like to say a marketing, a hill you would die on that is like a strong statement that the content is going to be surrounded around this hill that I would die on. And then you create pillar content underneath that niches out that you are keep saying and repeating, I believe this, I believe this, I believe this. So it resonates in the head. Like if you see some of the greatest speakers out there, they're just saying the same thing a thousand different ways. The greatest speakers out there, if you, the greatest content people, they're just saying the same thing to the same people because they want to get in the head that this is what I believe, this is what, what my content is. So that's how you niche is through like finding the people who stand on the hill that you're standing on and getting rid of the people who are not, and that's totally fine. And you got to have haters when you have content and product, you got to have people who totally go the different way to have a good true product or true content. You got to have people say, this is a bad idea. And you got to have people who say, I totally believe what this content is saying. Like to your business example, like for a merch business that's brand new, that needs to appeal to sorority presidents or whoever's ordering the merch, whoever's bringing it to campus. I think LinkedIn's a really good place for you to have that discussion and to, I think offering someone who's at a sorority $30 is a great way to get them to like really pay attention to your questions. I think too, you could gift or seed your product to someone who may be like a micro sorority influencer who's gone through rush talk on TikTok or whatever it might be. And then your content can be this is like a really influential sorority president, maybe on their campus, maybe at a smaller school to start. And then there's a lot that people will do for free stuff. And so if you can give her, you know, 20 sweatshirts or 10 or three sweatsuits and then half off for the next 20, whatever it might be, then the deal can be like, all I ask is that you like wear it and then tag us when you do. And then that content, if you're able to use it and negotiate that, you're then able to have that customer, whether or not they paid, they're still, they still look like a customer, have them become content that you can use as a brand. And the easiest way as a brand to get more customers that you want is to have customers that you want showing up in your brand and then your whole content strategy isn't always like us as a brand having to make you know a net new like sorority appealing content it can be someone who's already in this market is showing up in a cool way in my product and then your content can be that customer and then this lo-fi like organic looking deal is whether or not they paid for it eventually that person's going to be able to influence more customers than maybe you would be So speaking of content, so we were talking a lot about um, content market fit. I think that's where we're heading towards. Can we be more explicit about like, when do we see that happening? Like how should we be micro adjusting the content? How many perhaps different pillars should we start off by testing with? 
first you got to think is your content as a product and it has to be separate from what your business is doing right now so everything is what you're doing for an audience the easiest way which is why i love social media is it gives you direct feedback really quickly if your content is good if your content is bad because really what the an algorithm is and people like to say they know it is the audience an algorithm is the audience these platforms are incentivized to keep you on the platform they want good content on the platform they wouldn't put bad content on the platform to show to more people so the key to that is at first is just like sports like anything just take at bats and get quantity to get to quality what i mean by that is just put out a bunch of different things to see what resonates, what does, what hits with your audience, what doesn't, and do it on platforms that have higher organic reach. LinkedIn is a good example, TikTok, Instagram Reels, YouTube Shorts. These platforms have, especially like LinkedIn, a content deficit. Um, so they need more content for interest-based. TikTok's very good for interest-based stuff. So if you put out content, TikTok will find what you're tagging in in the content or what you're saying or what the subtitle is saying and serve it to that audience. So the more people who like it through metrics like impressions, reach, likes, engagement, you can start seeing shares. The number one thing I think you go, I think, is to get your content shared is when I think about it is your number one goal is how many people can I get to share with their friends and other friends. So looking at that metric. So I would start on social because it's harder to do that on a website where there's no audience, the built-in audience. It's hard to do that on any platform where there's no built-in audience. So I should say start testing those value props on social first to find what content resonates. And another tip for for everybody is dominate one platform first what i mean by this is that don't go start ig reels tiktok linkedin all these stuff all at once go and say i'm going to be the best on linkedin first and see if my audience is there once i dominate that i can go to ig reels once i do ig reels i can go to tiktok so dominate the platform first to then find out to get to another platform i have a question for you on this <laughs> so how do you know thinking about how this feeds into product market fit, which was the question that Alice asked. How do you know that your content is doing well because of what you're saying in the sense of like, oh, I should take that feedback and incorporate it into my product. That seems like a problem to be solved or that seems like a statement that people resonate with versus, I think sometimes I see this on social, like that just seems like something unexpected and people are talking about it or people have a reaction to it, but it may be isn't something that you should listen to as like product refinement or audience refinement. Or I guess the question is like, does it matter like what type of content, you know, what funnel of content you're creating when you're looking at something, yeah. you have like 10 LinkedIn Good posts question. and one of them's really hit. How do I know that I should feed that back into my business versus just like, oh, I said something, you know, controversial. Yeah, I think even controversial is uh, like would show that you have something good for your business. But I think looking at comments, looking at uh, what audience is saying, I think the unscalable things at the I think Tamara said this, but the unscalable things help you scale later. But I think also when it comes to content per se, is you got to test different formats and different types. Like 
do images work, do long thought leadership pieces work. And you also got to think of it as what is my goal of the platform? So what is, is my goal to get a lot of attention? Is my goal to sell more products? Is my goal to get more brand awareness? Is my goal to be a thought leader on this platform? Like, what is my goal? First, you start there and then you say, okay, I need to create content. If it's attention to drive somewhere else, like what I do on LinkedIn is my goal is to get as much attention as possible to drive someone to show my expertise through newsletter, through events, through product. But some people who have a company, their best bet is to be educating on what they believe and do more in depth like Tamara does on LinkedIn. It all depends on a goal you have that you set out for the platform and then you you start testing. And then what I also see is if you rep- you can repurpose your idea multiple times and if it keeps on hitting, then you know you have something great if it keeps on showing that the algorithm likes it. Because sometimes, but again, every time bad content does not get seen in the algorithm, it's just a fact. Like humans are engaging in the content. So if a thing's getting a bunch of likes, it's good. But the problem is don't just create content to get those likes. Create content, keep in your lane and what you're standing for to do that. And Alice, I think what you said about comments is really important too. Like I know you were watching the competitors' comments, which I think is brilliant. But looking at comments on your content, I think is what could feed value props in those early days. So you might think that like the value of your product is one thing, but again, someone else is going to perceive it to be different. And so I always love reading the comments on LinkedIn when people are like, this is why I joined, or you have to sign up so that you can get this. And I literally will copy and paste those and then rework them to become value props. Cause I'm like, that was in my own customer's words. And sometimes it's a completely different angle than I even expected. And so I think that's a great way to dig deep on that content market fit and take what you're learning from your social content and funnel it directly back into those yeah. product market fit exercises. I think you could also ask questions like seated with the CTA, like what are your thoughts on this? Like share your opinion. Ari does this really well. Like how do you do it on your newsletter to know that you're doing or with your 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 e-commerce products? Like how do you know that the content is resonating with the audience? I think for e-com, I, my goal of every piece of content is to make more money in Shopify either now or later. So for my actual like store to make more money. And so I would care to your point about like controversy or if it's interesting. I think that depends on exactly the purpose of that content. So a paid ad, I, we used to work at a snack company and we had uh, someone at our company who was in charge of ads and they were good looking. And so they would be in all of our ad creative. And then the first comment would always be like, I don't want the snacks, but like, is he free? And then we would, as the brand, instead of deleting that comment because it feels irrelevant, we'd be like, I don't know, like buy and maybe he'll deliver it. Or like we would play into it. And sometimes our comment back would get a hundred or 200 likes, which makes the entire ad more efficient. And then the more you play back with your customers, and then we've screenshotted these conversations, not in this exact example, but for a beauty brand that I'm working on, there'll be someone saying like, no, like I use the shampoo and I got a boyfriend the next day or whatever. And like the brand will be part of the conversation instead of being all buttoned up and serious, they play back. 
and that makes you more efficient. And then you can screenshot that entire ad creative, ask the person who wrote the original comment, be like, hey, can I give you $500 to shop on my store if I use this creative? And then you use it as an ad and that can make like, I have an ad that we did this for and it's made like $400,000 and we spent $400,000 like total in the total ad account and this one ad in this one ad account has popped off and I think that's the goal of a paid ad is to drive conversation but mostly for it to become more efficient and more practical and on the newsletter side my whole goal is for someone to be so enticed by what I'm posting that they would like dare to sign up for my free newsletter which is their whole risk that I'll be annoying and that they'll have to unsubscribe and so I think if it's it's a bigger like barrier to entry if you're trying to get someone to spend their money or their time and I think both of them are valuable just depends on who you're going for but the CTA is always to have them take an action, be it to comment or to share it or to buy from you or to sign up, whatever you want, or to just like sometimes also just to like it is good because at least they are then going to show up back in your algorithm and you're going to be able to see them again. You weren't so annoying that they unsubscribed or blocked you. So sometimes that's enough. I'll add like comments are content. I think people are like, forget that comments are content and then comments can be used as content ideas. So you see someone ask a question and you see it multiple times or it gets liked a lot. Use that as a seed for your next piece of content that you're going to go put out. Or it's a great way to what Ari said, like, I think the unscalable things at the beginning is conversation. It's social media for a reason. It's supposed to be social. You suppose it's a two way conversation and what brands make a mistake, it's not one it's not one off. It's not a microphone to one person. It's a two-way conversation. So from my personal experience, like I've experimented with a lot of these channels. And I like Daniel, I, I'm gonna take your advice to really double down on one. But the problem that I also feel like is I'm not getting like enough traffic or like I don't know if it's something with the TikTok algorithm like it's very unstable to the point that I feel like I don't have statistical significance what are some channels that are good like maybe I was just doing TikTok wrong but can you like suggest different channels that we could try to drive more of that type of testing for me I think TikTok is very much a content like when I go on TikTok I often accidentally buy things but I'm not on TikTok hoping to buy I'm on TikTok hoping for something fun or to be a part of the conversation or to see what's going on and TikTok too it has a younger base not it's not as young as people think but it is younger and they have less disposable income and so I think for me if I was trying to double down on one channel for like your business for I would really rely on Instagram and I think TikTok can be your way of hopefully sometimes going viral and having these big pops but instead of you as the brand account trying to go viral that would be where I would seed my product to these like really popular sorority gals who have found their way on TikTok Mm -hmm. and have them like even my first sponsored post I probably would use on TikTok but I think for me as a brand I would rather own the conversation on Instagram because it's also really easy to get someone who is an organic follower. Then if you decide one day to turn on paid spend, you're going to want to turn it on first in meta. And so it would be more comfortable as a brand when you're spending and buying ads. If the brand account that's serving that ad has like 50 followers, 
people click that and they'll see like, oh, maybe this isn't a real business. And so it would be a disadvantage to ignore that channel, even if it's not where you found like the easiest success, because it isn't organic, but you one day will have paid meta ads and you don't want that account to just be sitting waiting. Yeah. Then when should you lean into organic versus like paid traffic? I would never run paid if I wasn't posting every single day organically on that platform, which is because A, hopefully it will go viral and B, to that same point where when people are clicking on the ad and the account looks stale or like Mm. it's been abandoned. And then C, it also lets you test where your content like can succeed, where you're going to get a lot of likes, where people are sharing it, where at least things aren't working. And obviously it'll be really different. Like organic content versus paid often looks really different, but you should work both into whatever channel you're spending on. Like it's not, I think it's not acceptable to spend money on a channel you don't post for free on. Go on a channel where your audience is hanging out on at first. Like that's the number one answer to anything. It's the simplest answer, but the more complex answer is you need to decide who your audience is on that platform. So you need to decide, okay, I am going to create content for fraternities and sororities. I'm going to create content for this group of people. And the content needs to be all about those people. So whether it's getting someone in a sorority to be your creator or someone to be that. And the way I would seed, I would just seed your product organically into the content like, oh, I, I'm wearing this shirt or like, where did she get that cool shirt from? Or, but the, all the content is going to be helping maybe sororities, other sorority sisters and doing X, Y, and Z, showing the behind the scenes of a sorority, showing that I'm buying shirts for bid day, like these are the shirts I got and unboxing it. Like the whole thing is about the audience and then you you find ways to seed the product. And then for Ari's point, I think for channels that you are spending on, you need both those, both for paid and organic to be, like you don't want to run meta ads and then have zero posts because then you look like a fake company. But also organic feeds paid and paid feeds um, organic. And what I mean by that is that you can create great organic content that can eventually be great paid content and great paid content that's or can eventually be great organic content. So the, I see a lot of problems with like companies thinking it's two different teams and not working together with that content. Because even like in B2B, I was talking to the, the CMO of Jenny Kane and she thinks of content as photo shoots and UGC and that type of thing where and B2B SaaS, it could be blogs and, and stuff like that. But also, when you use that, then it gets fed into tomorrow's camp and tomorrow can now go use the content and the ideas to, one, do audience research. Now she has a seed of audience. And then two, figure out, like, what are they complaining about in the Zed? What is What are they, what products are wrong or not wrong? So I don't know. how 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 do you take what we learn as like content saying, what should I do as a, a content person to give you the right information to help you succeed in product? Today's sponsor is Dash Hudson, a social media management platform trusted by thousands of leading brands like United Airlines and Rare Beauty. With its sophisticated insights and workflow tools, Dash Hudson empowers brands to succeed on social. Today, we're giving you access to Dash Hudson's 
highly anticipated social media trends report to unlock the insights and best practices you need to outsmart social. To read the report and sign up for a free 14-day trial, head over to dashhudson.com backslash podcast. A lot of it is just having access to the customers and like the customer data, but it becomes qual and quant. But I think like I'm always working with the channel teams to understand like, should we be allocating more money to a different channel? Should we be testing a different channel? Some platforms will give you better data as well. Like as Ari said with Meta, it's like, because it's so connected, you have access, you can create like look like audiences. I remember that used to be really successful. So there's so much that we can do. So thinking about like not just creating the content, but what will you do with the data? And will you even have access to the data afterwards is a really important question. Mm -hmm. And I know you guys like you've been working in marketing for so many years, but that's definitely not typical of a business school student at HBS. And I think at HBS, a lot of people come from product, product manager backgrounds, finance consulting backgrounds, and these don't really overlap with marketing. Where should I or people like myself seek out um, head of marketing for my company? And what are the key critical skills that they should bring in at this very early stage? Because I know, I know for a fact it's going to be different from when my company is X million dollars big. I think it's a complicated answer. I mean, the first one is if you really want to understand your business and scale your business, you do need to learn the marketing side of it because people think marketing is marketing. It's not. It's business strategy, like understanding, like, who are my best customers? What are the problems or pains in that customer's life? And how can I build products, experiences, content to solve that and deliver value Those are fundamental marketing questions, but they're actually business strategy. And if you separate the two or outsource it to someone else, you're never going to be successful long term. And so I think brushing up on that, you don't have to love it, but brushing up on it and being involved in some way is important. I think the executional side of marketing is what can feel intimidating. Like, what tools do I buy? How do I use them? Am I like misspending my money? Totally. And so I think that's an area where, I mean, first we'll go to Ari after because she's much more of an expert, but that's where I, like, that's also not my skill set. And so I've always leaned on, you know, contractors for something like that early on. You don't need a full marketing hire necessarily. Maybe it's just an agency or it's someone who can be like your extended arm of those skills, but the strategy I think should still sit with you as a founder, but super interested in Ari's perspective. No one who like is known in marketing or who's now like risen in marketing knew anything. Like for me, for example, I dropped out of law school. I found my way into e-commerce because I didn't have any hard skills and I needed a job. And there was a customer service role at an e-commerce company. And I knew I could like write tickets back to customers and help them find their packages. And then over time, I honed my skills in that role. Then I started to understand marketing because whatever marketing promised my customer, if it didn't come true, it really affected my life because they'd be mad. And then it was a big deal. So I think marketing across the board, I know so much about e-commerce. I don't know a ton about some parts of e-commerce. I'm really not good at SEO. I am really not a good graphic designer. And I need SEO and a graphic designer as someone who is like a full functioning marketer. And so you have to like know where you don't know, which I think is exactly your question. Mm-hmm. And you as or anyone who's at Harvard Business School is really smart. And they also have a 
a really good idea. And that's why when you would then be ready for a head of marketing, you need someone who believes in your idea with you. And especially for a startup, my experience is someone who's come from a really big company like a L'Oreal conglomerate or Estee Lauder or Unilever, whatever it might be. It's not who I would want in the first hire to my team. Not at all. I, I think those people are geniuses and I think that they scale businesses, but I would want someone who's started from nothing and has grown something and has proven that. And until you can afford someone who has done that, who you also really like their personality and you think they're going to be the type of person who could have a, a nice team under them and the right culture under them, I would completely lean on contractors. And I think then for you as the founder, you would have to know enough to be able to know when you're doing something wrong as a company. And that means you have to know every part. And you don't have to know it, but you have to be in every meeting. You have to be paying really close attention in the beginning. And you have to bring in outside voices that you trust to make sure that for the things you don't understand that they're auditing that work to be that extra eye. So you have to like lean on more than one person so that you don't accidentally, it's a big choice to choose that first person. So no matter who you choose, you have to choose someone who then like is comfortable being checked along the way. The other thing I do see in situations like the one that you're saying, I don't know if you see this in e-com, but I definitely see this in the world of SaaS and software is you'll have the agencies do the work. Um, and then it's like you as the founder maybe don't have the expertise. So you could bring on a marketing advisor. So someone like an art yes. or someone like me. And we often will be advisors for companies where we'll spend maybe four hours a month with your company. Sometimes it's just for equity. Sometimes it is for payment. It, there are different models, but it's a much lower cost than bringing on someone full time. And then in that way, you can get that strategic advice. They can be your sounding board. Sometimes they can even interface with your consultants when you need them, especially if there's a large project or something. So I have found that to be very successful in the software world. Do you see that in e-com? Is that a thing? Yeah, I mean... I work for an agency where we are this marketing eye for our clients. And so we have maybe a core scope where we're making landing pages and ads and replatforming to Shopify. And then we will bring in partners like for SEO or but partners that we've trusted with 15 clients before and that were referred to us that we tested on a brand that we manage internally before we go recommend it. And so for the things we do, we do them really well. And the things we don't do, we would bring in the partner for you that we put our name on and we trust but I also have a really quick point that I have to make in case anyone listening like doesn't know like what technology to choose. And that I think is a big question. If you're a new founder, there's this free, I don't work for them, I promise. There's this free Google uh, plugin. It's like a Chrome extension called Built With. And basically, let's say I had a beauty brand and they were selling lipsticks. That, that was my brand. And I wanted to know what the bigger beauty brand that I was chasing that my competitor, what they used on their site, you can use Built With and it will show you exactly every software that that website uses. Ooh. And it's free. And I love free. And so basically then, no matter what you use, you need to know what your competition is doing because you don't want to be like the person who accidentally buys this random software because some great salesperson told you everyone uses it. I want to go to my favorite website, the website that I just clicked on an ad and I accidentally bought from them because it works so well and I want to know what they're using and you could study like that stack and you study then 15 other websites that have to do with yours and you can figure out without even talking to a marketer like what other people are doing because you just want to copy at this point. I love that and MarTech is such a like inundated market. There are so many softwares to choose from. 
a tool is only as good as the person using the tool. Even if a company is using great software, like you might not have the resources to execute that software at that level. So it's good to know that, okay, XYZ brand is using these softwares, but if you do not know how to execute or connect the softwares and stuff, it's just like if you're like have plumbing, a plumbing company and like you don't know how to use a plunger, like a plunger is not going to work for anybody. So it's like if you don't know how to use the plunger, the plunger doesn't do anything for you. Um, you just it's only as good as the plumber who's fixing that, that toilet. One thousand bad knowledge, but one thousand percent. So my next question is: Would you ever hire from your direct competitors? I would love to. That would be my first place to start. And whenever I've ever been recruited, or whenever I've looked for a job, it's really, really only worked for my like favor. If I worked somewhere that was similar or had the same type of customer, where I've worked at maybe a big e-commerce marketplace that had a celebrity founder. And that customer was buying these seven types of products. Maybe one of them is like really healthy food. And I came from Press Juicery, which is a like big e-commerce and omni-channel juice store. And that would be me being able to market to that customer. And then when I'm going to this new brand, they know I know them. Or I've accidentally found my way in like celebrity e-commerce where my first celebrity brand that I worked on, then when I worked there... A recruiter would email me and say, hey, we have a stealth e-commerce beauty brand that has a celebrity founder. And that brand is only hiring people that have worked for this type of environment because it's a super specific way of marketing. And then now I've worked on 20 different celebrity e-commerce brands in all different verticals. But you understand like the way that traffic behaves. So I have only been hired into similar brands. And so if I wanted to start a uh jeans company i would love to steal from like a goldie or any of the jean brands that i love i think like hiring from a competitor can be complicated though because there are non-competes and especially it depends on what kind of role we're talking about if it's like an entry-level role maybe the not no one's going to enforce that non-compete but let's think you're hiring your first marketing hire it's probably an an executive or very high level role like i bet you they have an ironclad non-compete and people do enforce them I know several people who are in situations like that. So I think that's one thing to consider. It's like maybe they don't have to be at the competitor right now, but were they in that world recently or start courting them so that you can plan for that? So I know some people who they will plan to get hired at your company a year from now. So they need to leave to have enough time for their non-compete to run out or for it to be you know, acceptable for them to join. So that's one thing to consider. Wow. Sometimes stealing from your competitor will be a bit narrow as well, though. I like to think like kind of what you're saying, I think, Ari, which is what is the world or ecosystem around your business? And I try to hire from that ecosystem. So I'm not going to hire someone that's like has no idea who my customer segment is or how I run my business, like the go to market motion that I have. I love hiring people who actually were customers and are passionate about it, or if not, they're passionate about the mission, right? Um, and they're showing up to work every day because they care about the mission, not just the product or their paycheck. I love the customer thing. I think customers sometimes make, and also for content side of it, they have expertise of the industry you're doing. So like the best B2B content is expertise. 
know, like showing that you actually know what you're talking about. I think that's a great point. I think also, I think sometimes it's better, especially like in B2B, it's sometimes better to take someone from a totally different industry or take someone from uh, e-commerce or um, B2C because they can bring totally different opinions into the company that a B2B marketer thinks the same way as you, but a B2C marketer would be like, why are you doing this? They'll question everything you're doing. So I think there's a mixture of customers, maybe someone who's worked in the industry, and then there's also making that risk higher of someone who knows is way different um, than you are and can bring different opinions into the room. Even for your first hire, though? Is this the first hire? I think so. We're still saying first marketing hire? Yeah. I think first marketing hire, I think find the scrappiest person out there. A jack of all trades. I think those are the best, the ones they can get. But also another criteria I look for is, do they have the level of care of what we're trying to solve? And I think that's that's really important. Can Will they get their hands doing it? I just want to find an, a doer for the first hire and then find strategy after because as eventually you will need that strategy, but a doer will just get crap done and find a way to find, do things, I think. And also, Ari's point, I think, every le- you got to just know what type of marketers are out there. Like Someone who's worked in a startup is probably knows how to re- work in a startup and knows the ropes of they a startup. Can handle it. Yeah, they can handle working in a startup. Someone who's worked at a big e-commerce company, maybe they're great at that, and that's what they're great at, but going and getting their hands dirty and working a non-traditional job, which is not nine to five. It's a, a salary does not mean nine to five. It means um, you're working for the company whenever they need you, um, especially in startup. So finding someone who's willing to do that and execute with you and grind with you at the beginning. So where do these type of uh, marketers hang out? Part of it could be maybe around your product. Like it could even be maybe there's someone who you're selling to startups, right? You're, or you're selling to um, sororities. Maybe it's someone who's graduated. They were a customer of yours. Maybe they were even one of your like advocates or influencers. They are now looking for a job. Like that could be a great fit because they already have bought into your product. They have skills that you could use. They know your brand. And the other one is like asking connections. So that type of a hire, like a scrappy marketer who's also understands strategy, uh, ask around and like ask from a mission perspective as well. Like, here's what I'm trying to build. Here's the difference that I'm trying to make. Do you know anyone who like also cares about that? Because again, you're not just hiring based on skill set at this point. So ask for that. Then you can assess skill set in like the interview process. And I think go to places where marketers hang out, right? So like like if you're trying to find a great product marketer, I would probably go find a way to get into tomorrow's community to find a great t- product marketer. If I was yeah. looking for more of a scrappy marketer, maybe I'll go into a more broader community that has a bunch of different things and ask people, hey, I'm looking for someone with X, Y, and Z skills. Do you know of them? So go where marketers hang out to ask those questions that tomorrow's saying. Awesome. So I'm hearing hire a doer, focus slightly less on the skill set and much, much more on the willingness to work, uh, grind. 
So we're almost out of time, but I wanted to ask one last practical question, which is around copywriting. So I think as a founder,、um, it's all about doing the job, and a lot of so much of it is copywriting. Can you guys walk us through the different types of copywriting that's out there,、um, and what are some key tricks, perhaps for sales copies like B two B, where Daniel you worked in? So there is different types of copy out there. I think there's selling. Type copy,、um, and there's two types of selling copy. There's direct response, which you can use in advertising, but there's also cold emailing. I'll break down a cold email first, and then Ari will probably be better breaking down a direct response or another ad, and then we'll talk about more broadly content. So for cold email, the formula I got from Vin, who's like one of the best sales people at Demandbase, is first you have to. Show interest into the that person. Like I saw that you are were on this podcast. This is a cool insight that I've got first. Then you go into a pro the, a problem that you're solving that you think they have. So you say something like I I see like people like you have this problem. I want to like X Y and Z. Then the solution is your solution. So you give a one line pitch of like how your product. Solves that, and then a call to action. Usually, it's like an interest-based call to action, like interested in learning more, like willing to talk about this. It's a simple formula that you just go show that you you care with the person. The first line, like you actually paying attention, like hey, I saw that you posted an article on LinkedIn about merge,、um, and I really resonated with X, Y, and Z. I know a lot of people who sell merge. Have the problem that it's hard to market to customers. My product does X, Y, and Z. I'm not my product, but I know a solution that could do X, Y, and Z to increase your customer base from five percent to twenty percent. Interested in learning more? So you showed like you care about the person. You show like you you have a problem that they're going to solve. You're going to give them a solution, and then. You close out with a strong action, like to get them you to respond. But you can go into more direct response or like an ad to sell. So ad copy is not one size fits all, and it often is not as fun or as funny or cheeky or cute as you would hope it would be. It's normally the most simple, and whenever it's not simple, it's because you. Lucked into like a really crazy way of saying this thing in as few words as possible. My favorite type of ad copy is tested ad copy, and so if I'm working an account, we're running Meta, and we're spending four million dollars a month on Meta, and we're making fifty ads, I cannot handle when then there's two ad lines that are written to support those really intricate assets. We're gonna have gifts and videos and statics, and we've spent. Thousands of dollars and many hours to make that creative, and then one person writes one ad copy set, and we apply it to those fifty creatives. I think the same lens of like testing and iteration and sort of non laziness, or I I don't have a better word. It's like you think you know this is what the ad copy should say. It's what you've written either in the past or it's something a competitor wrote, so you've applied it to your brand, and that's the format. And then you need to make like twenty different versions, depending on your spend, that are super similar and super different. And I think you need to test an emoji at the end versus no an exclamation mark, all caps, whatever you're going to try. But ad copy can be written by anyone because 
it is all around us. And I think the best copy comes from examples. And so the last ad you converted on, you have to save that copy. The funniest line of copy you've ever seen, you have to save that copy and you should try it all. And for me, when I'm writing too, I always try to write like my customer. And some brands have customers that are like more serious. And so maybe that should be written in proper grammar. Some customers use like you are to write your and they use lowercase, whatever it might be. But ad copy is so different than all other types of copy. But this is also something that if you're not a copywriter, this could be a perfect like consultant or small task for someone. And what has to happen though is like you as the founder or someone on your team has to give that person like true tested value props and details because ad copy that says nothing no matter how funny or how cute or how simple if it says nothing it says nothing and so you have to arm whoever's going to write this copy with like facts to go write against yeah so i i really love that um so running we're currently like launching our own ads on google so i have a lot of like very detailed conversations with our like freelancer to go over exactly what type of like what value propositions we have and i feel like it's all about finding the right person who can understand that that value proposition not everybody is in the same demographic to actually understand that. Um, and I also have a folder on my phone that where I saved all the good like ads Get that I've seen on Instagram. There we go. And I remember like the one that really struck out to me is ShareTax, the like yes. the legging company where they like put all the like dumbbells and like really sharp scissors into the stockings and shows that it does not rip. And I feel like these types of assets can be very, very helpful for our own creations. I think also some of the best copy are the words of your customer. Mm -hmm. That's where working together with a product marker or if tomorrow was a really is just like a, a, a strategy person and get what are the customers saying and then trying that as ad copy because you want to talk the same way as your audience is talking and write like they talk and the, what better way than taking actual words that they're saying and put testing that as ad copy. And I think a lot of people forget that the words of your customer are probably some of the best ad copy you'll ever write. Yeah, so like we, um, for our value proposition, one thing is we say that we like cut out all the middlemen in the merch industry so we go directly to the manufacturers and i really knew i hit the right point because i think i had three customers who had repeated that word oh so you guys cut out the middleman so that's our money word i love it i also think like one thing i'll add here is we're talking about copywriting and i think we often think about copywriting as like an ad and i love how you daniel gave the example of the email because that is copy. Mm -hmm. And I'd even like push it one step forward to be like all of the things we talked about today around content market fit, like the same concepts can apply because every time you're writing a piece of content, you're writing it to try to get your audience to take a desired action. So it is copy. It is an advertisement in some way. And so I think thinking about where are you writing your content? So we talked a lot about audience. We talked about a lot about channel. And then I would say here, like the words that you're writing and the tone and your voice and everything should fit into all of that. So for example, you know, I produce content mostly on my newsletter and on LinkedIn. I use two different voices. Like, you know, that is written by me, 
but there's like slight nuances. And so on LinkedIn, I'm like much more authoritative. I'm much more opinionated. Um, I often get told when people just know me on LinkedIn and then they meet me in person, they're like, you're so warm in person. <laughs> so apparently I sound cold, but I, but it's because I have like, I have a hill I'm going to die on and I lean into that versus my newsletter. It literally... I write it as if I was sitting down with a friend. Like I'm imagining that it's Sunday morning. I'm having coffee with Daniel and Ari. And that's what my newsletter is like. And people tell me that. They're like, oh, I love it. I feel like we're friends now. And same audience, right? But different platform and different actions I'm trying to get them to do. And so like that's an intentional decision I make. That's awesome. I also like to give the example that every platform is like a different language. So if you go, like an American goes to like France and starts to try to speak French or do, or speaks does, speaks English to someone who doesn't understand it, they're going to be like, oh, I don't understand that. Or they don't, they don't speak the slang that French speak, people speak. They'll be like, they'll spot out that that's not, you have to learn those platforms and learn what works on that platform and then apply it. Email is the same way. TikTok's the same way. I think a lot of people, what they do is try to copy and paste strategy from different platforms. What works on LinkedIn might not work on TikTok. What works on TikTok might not work on email. What works on ad creative might not work on just regular IG. So you have to have a different voice and talk differently and do the things that work for that platform because that's how people consume the content on that platform. That's awesome. So I wanted to save a few minutes for questions in the audience. You said that it was better to hire someone more like the more than the experience or but how do you encourage that person to change or grow or the use being more So your question is working at a startup you manage a person who's a doer. How do you encourage that person to take on more responsibilities, to become a strategist who's able to take on more responsibilities or manage even more people behind, underneath them? I think first, you just got to know what type of person you are. Some people are doers and some people are strategy people. Like for me, for me I'm a very up in the sky creative person um and ari is like the most like get shit done person i've ever met um like she just gets shit done like that's like if you see ari like she, she but she also could do strategy so i don't know how she has both brains um but i think it takes experience to get to strategy i think strategy just doesn't come it, it comes from doing the work first even though i was more of a up in the air creative person like I had to get my feet wet and prove that I can do the work first even though I didn't like it at first because I was just trying to be like I have these ideas I, my ideas are cool but I had to prove that I'm good enough to be able to share my ideas and that's usually the best way to do it is prove that you are the best at your role and that's why focusing very narrow at first is a great way while learning others broad stuff but being the best at your skill and then people will eventually trust your idea for strategy if you tell that person that they're an executor and they they do these seven things and that's what you want from them then why would they feel comfortable growing or speaking up because they don't think their ideas are valued they think they're like a set of hands and so 
I think if you teach your team that this is like their first role with you or this is their like first big priority, but the best idea, if that's like the type of company you want to run where the best idea wins, that's the type of company I work at where I might be one of the most senior people at our entire company and I might hire someone who this might be their first job. But if we're running a campaign and if this is an idea room, why should you hear my ideas? I have my own like unique viewpoint on the world and I might not even be our customer. Our customer might be more close to their age or they might just have a better idea than me. And I think that the best idea, if you let that idea win and if you encourage that behavior and if you also give that person time to learn versus just time to go do one more little task that maybe should get done that day. I have someone on my team, um, we just bought them a $3,000 course. And it's not that they needed this course, it's that they should have the opportunity to learn this skill set, not from the people that work here. Should they learn like a better way of doing it or should it open their eyes? And also for me, I have like a lot of job duties that I wouldn't be able to onboard this person in a way that I think will be helpful. And so you can resource your team. You can encourage your team to take the time and you can't stifle them. One more point here, because I, I love this question. I now write a lot of copy and my copy is like respected and I get we use it a lot. I write a newsletter to 40,000 people. People think I'm a good writer. I have workplaces where they've told me I'm a boring writer, where they've told me I don't follow like their grammar correctly or that I can write the bullet points and they'll turn it into copy. And if you asked me when I was 25, if I was a good writer, I would say no. And if you ask me now and I'm 29, I would say yes, because now I've been told by other people that I'm a good writer and not because I'm any different of a writer. And I think you just like can't crush people. So your doers are also really like strategic too. Yeah, I think like the one thing I'd add here is that there's a difference between strategist and strategy. So like a strategist is a very specific role often in a company and as particularly in agencies, but also at other companies, like I was the chief strategy officer amounts. That role is like, you need to be a certain type of person. You need to be a futurist. You need to be very forward focused. You're building strategy across different time horizons. That is a very specific career path and there are steps to get there. That is not to say that everyone in their role cannot be strategic. And I think we often separate the two to the detriment of everyone who is a doer or an executor. And not everyone can build the company strategy. Everyone, I believe, can be strategic in how they approach their work. And so for me, um, if I was starting out like you are in that role, like I would be focused on becoming excellent at how to do the work, but I would be asking, why are we doing the work? And so kind of trying to understand, like, what is the strategy behind this? Why did we choose that? Going a level deeper to not just refine the skill set, but refine the thinking behind it as well. And then naturally, that's going to allow you to use those different strategic thinking skills in the next project where maybe someone doesn't need to tell you exactly what to do, and then you do it, but they're going to say like, hey, here's a problem. How would you approach it? And you're going to be able to take a strategic approach and you're going to be able to execute it. And I think for me, that has been like the critical mix of skills that's allowed me to excel in my career. And so it's like thinking about the how, but also the why. I think the way to grow in a company is to align everything you do to your boss's goals and then the company goals. I think what people start doing a lot is, they start doing everything. But I think when you make your boss look good and then you make those those goals 
start making hitting the comp goals and you you narrow your focus on that but the first thing you need to do is understand like ask the questions understand and get with other people in the company go to the finance department understand like why the numbers are the numbers like this why are we tracking these kpis go to the product team and ask why are we building these certain features at the beginning you just got to ask a bunch of questions why 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 and there's no dumb questions at the beginning of your career totally well we're officially out of time thank you guys so much and i like for the audience this reference um i really appreciated today's episode because i initially heard daniel and tamara on one of the sessions about like product uh customer segmentation of i think you almost this was like maybe six months or a year ago. Um, so I reached out to you, to Tamara, to ask if you'd like to speak um, at Harvard Business School. Um, and I've been listening to this podcast every single week on my way to the gym. So this is a really special place for me. And I really appreciate you guys coming out today. And I hope everyone um, enjoyed today's session and that this content is helpful for all the founders out there like myself. Thanks so much Peace. for having Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. Tune in next week to hear more great insights from marketing's coolest operators. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the Marketing Millennials podcast and giving it a five-star rating. It helps bring more marketers into our community.